Welcome to the audio sermons of South Baton Rouge Presbyterian Church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We hope you are encouraged by listening. For more information, please feel free to browse our site at www.sbrpc.org. Sermon series on Sunday mornings, uh, we've been going through the book of Revelation, and lately we found ourselves in chapters 2 and 3. And in chapters 2 and 3, we see these seven letters from Jesus to seven churches that are in Western Asia or modern-day Turkey. And today we come to the church that's located in the city of Thyatira. Um, And that particular church was facing tremendous pressure to compromise their allegiance to Jesus. And so we're going to go ahead and jump right in, and I'm going to read for us Revelation 2, verses 18 through 29, and then I'll pray for us before we start talking about this passage. So let's give our attention to God's holy word. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works, but to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go before him now and ask for his help. Father, we do... um, come before you, and even as we have sat beneath the reading of your word, we pray that you would help us, that you would pour out your spirit in order that we would understand your word, in order that it would be applied to our lives, in order that we might, perhaps for the first time, or at least with fresh eyes, See the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory and in all his beauty and be led to follow him, embracing the cost of what it means to follow him. For we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. 
we live in a pluralistic society, right? So many different faiths, many different worldviews, many different cultures represented in our society. And we're in a pluralistic society. We're constantly being told that all religious claims are equally valid. So it's okay if you believe in Jesus or Buddha or Mohammed or whatever, as long as it's relegated to your private life. It's very pragmatic. You do what works for you. Um, But you can't say that you have any claim to truth. You can't say your truth is more superior to another's truth. And hopefully that sounds familiar because that's the culture we're all swimming in. And in a pluralistic society, any claim of exclusivity, any claim to know the absolute truth is seen as narrow or arrogant um, and even dangerous. Believe what you want to believe, but you can't claim your God, your belief system, your religion is superior to any other because that's dangerous. And that kind of environment puts a lot of pressure on Christians to compromise, to go along with their culture, you know, to get with the times, to get with the program, and to fully examine a pluralistic society and even offer some kind of critique of it would demand a, a whole nother sermon or a series of sermons. I mention it here because what I'm describing to you right now could just as easily be a description of the first century Roman world as it is 21st century America. The Roman world was very pragmatic. It was a very pluralistic society, very similar to ours. And it put tremendous pressure upon Christians to compromise and conform to the culture. So here's the thing. If the church, if Christians have been here before, if Christianity was in fact born into a pluralistic society, then what can we learn about how to follow Jesus in a society that puts tremendous pressure on us, day in and day out, to compromise? Jesus' letter to the church in Thyatira, I think, speaks to this and tells us that we have to do three things. One, We have to understand the danger. Two, we have to count the cost. And three, we have to hold fast by looking forward. Understand the danger, count the cost, hold fast by looking forward. Explain as we go. First, we have to understand the danger. So in verse 19, Jesus said to the church in Thyatira, I know your works your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So there were a lot of things going well for the church in Thyatira. Love, faith, service, endurance. They were a growing church, and they were doing a lot of good. But then comes that three-letter conjunction, but, in verse 20. And you know that what's on the other side of that conjunction is rarely good news, right? When your mom or your spouse or your teacher or your boss uses that conjunction, but you know that bad news is, is usually to follow. Jesus says, 
verse 20, but I have this against you. And what were they doing? You can look in those verses. They were tolerating the teaching of a woman who was seducing them to compromise. To compromise by eating food sacrificed to idols and practicing sexual immorality. And Jesus called this woman Jezebel. Um, that wasn't her name, but he's recalling this Old Testament figure in the book of First Kings because she shares a lot of similarities with that woman. Um, let me just give you the brief history here. Israel at that time, in the time of First Kings, had a king, King Ahab. And Ahab found it politically expedient and pragmatic to marry this woman Jezebel the daughter of a neighboring king. And it makes sense, right? A little compromise here to gain some political protection from a neighboring uh, nations. But when she got her foot in the door, she seduced Israel into following the idol Baal and all that came with that. And she ended up persecuting the believers, particularly the priests. Maybe you remember some of those stories like with a guy named Elijah, right? And it almost destroyed Israel. She almost wiped out Israel. And Ahab's compromise earned him this memorial in 1 Kings. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who went before him. 1 Kings 16.33. I'm throwing a lot of information at you quickly, but stay with me here. Come back to Revelation. The city of Thyatira was a prosperous commercial center in Western Asia. They were famous in particular for their trade guilds. And there was a trade guild for every trade. For wool workers and linen workers and dyers of linen and leather workers and bronze workers and potters and bakers, just to name a few. And they functioned a lot like unions, these trade guilds. Um, And so if you were a leather worker, you belonged to the leather work trade guild. Or if you were a potter, you belonged to the potter trade guild and so on. But here's where it got tricky. Each trade guild had its own patron god. And to belong to a trade guild meant participation in the idol feasts, where food was sacrificed to idols and people engaged in sexual immorality. Are you beginning to see the problem? The tremendous pressure they faced? They were saying, if you want to participate in the commercial, economic, social life of this city. You have to get with the program. Get with the times. Join a trade guild, which meant worshiping an idol and everything that came with it. And Christians couldn't do that. And it brought them into sharp conflict and and opposition with their culture. Because to not join a trade guild meant no job, which meant no money. No social connections. They were cut off. They they were rejected. They were labeled traitors and abandoned by their culture around them, seen as outsiders. But along came a woman named Jezebel. 
And whatever form her teaching took, we don't know exactly, the essence of it was compromise. You can worship Jesus on Sunday. What you do in your private life is fine. But Monday through Friday, you're free to do what you got to do to get along. You've got to adapt to your culture. You've got to get with the program. Don't be so narrow. Don't be so exclusive, only thinking in terms of either or. And she was saying, consider a third option maybe, the option of both and. Right? And apparently she, call, she called this the deep things of God, which is why Jesus ironically calls it in verse 24, the deep things of Satan. And she was saying, here's a way forward. A way to do both and, a way to worship Jesus in private, but avoid suffering for him in public. And I want you to feel the danger that I'm just trying to describe and get you to understand here, because the danger wasn't so much presenting itself here as an open denial of Jesus. He was saying, you can have Jesus. You just have to do this too. Just a little compromise. I heard this story, gosh, it's probably been over 20 years ago, and it has <clears throat> stuck with me all that time. A particular man was being <clears throat> interviewed while he was serving time in prison. And in this interview, he was reflecting on his life and <clears throat> how he came to find himself in prison. And he said that as a young boy, he remembered sneaking into his father's room, and his father had this gold watch that, um, that he loved, and he took it off of his dresser, and he was playing with it, but while he was playing with it, he, dro playing with it, he dropped it, and it broke, and he was afraid. So he took the watch, and he put it back on his father's dresser, and he didn't say anything about it. And his dad came and found the broken watch, and he asked about it, and this little boy said he remembered lying about it. He just kept silent, and he got away with it. And years later, as a grown man, he was driving home one night, and a ch small child ran out into the street, and he hit that child with his car, and he panicked. And he fled the scene. He made it home and he realized what he had done, but he was so afraid of the consequences, he chose to just keep silent and say nothing about it. And the child died. And eventually the police caught up with him and he wound up in jail for most of the rest of his life. And he told this story because what he was saying was that he realized it was that little compromise and then all the other little compromises that followed throughout the years to just keep silent, don't say anything, to lie about it. And he found that it had so marked his soul that it turned him into a man who could take the life of a child and try to cover it up. Just a little compromise. Do you understand the danger here? Because you may not be openly asked to deny Jesus, but the pressure to compromise 
It comes at us a million times, Monday through Friday, in a million little decisions, to remain silent and not speak out against injustice for fear of being ridiculed by our peers, to fudge the numbers in your quarterly report so that you can keep investors happy, to use innuendo, right, to damage the reputation of your competitors in business so that you can get ahead in your career, to turn a blind eye to your neighbor's suffering because you know what it's going to infringe upon your own comfort and your own security, to flirt with images on a screen or someone other than your spouse for your own pleasure. Here's what I'm telling you. Those are the trade guilds of 21st century America. Idols of social approval, of financial security, and career sex, and comfort, and achievement, and pleasure. Do you understand the danger? Maybe the most haunting line in this letter is in verse 21 when Jesus says about Jezebel, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. I mean, surely you hear Jesus' grace and patience in that. I've given her opportunity after opportunity, time after time, to turn to me for grace. But she refuses. And here's what I want to tell you it never looks like refusal in your life. What it looks like is, I'll get to that later. I'll deal with Jesus later. But right now, my career, right now, my bank account, right now, my reputation, right now, my desires. And I'm asking you the question, can you be so sure you'll get to Jesus later? Because Jezebel didn't, whatever her name was. Or are you continuing to mark your soul until you get to the point of no return? The one with eyes like a flame of fire. He searches minds and he searches your heart. You know, Jesus' charge of sexual immorality in verse 21 and then adultery in verse 22, it seems to have a double meaning here. Right? Yes, the physical act of sexual immorality. But what's in view here is also the spiritual act of adultery, of faithlessness to Jesus, which comes by compromise. All right, let's move on to the second point. Second, uh, we need to talk about how we have to count the cost. So how do you live as a believer in a pluralistic society that's constantly exerting pressure upon you to compromise. You have to count the cost to following Jesus. You have to adjust and reorient your expectations of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You have to count the cost. There is a cost to count. You know, one of the first commentaries that I picked up this week said, quote, Of all the letters to the seven churches, the letter to Thyatira is the most difficult to interpret. (laughs) Such encouraging words for a preacher on Monday. Um, One phrase I I did spend a lot of time thinking about this week is in verse 24. Because Jesus said, there are some that haven't held to Jezebel's teaching. Right? And to those, Jesus said at the end of verse 24, I do not lay on you any other burden." Now, that's a reference to the Jerusalem council 
that you can read about in Acts chapter 15, where the apostles there told the Gentile believers this, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from sexual immorality. Totally fits the context in Thyatira, right? But here's the nuance. That's a burden. There is a cost to abstaining from those things. That's exactly what we've been talking about. That if you abstain from those things, you are going to be cut off from participating in the commercial and economic enterprise of the city. You will be unable to find work. You will be struggling to put food on your table. You will be rejected and abandoned from the social life of the city. You will be seen as an outsider. You will be cast off alone. You know, someone once came up to Jesus and said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Wherever you go, Jesus. And you can sense this would-be disciple's enthusiasm and excitement. Sign me up, Jesus. I am all in wherever you go. And there was a lot to be excited about with Jesus, right? Here's this guy who's come and he is healing the sick and the lepers and the blind and the deaf and he's casting out demons and he's calming storms and he's raising the dead and on and on. And this man had gotten a taste of Jesus' kingdom. A taste of Jesus' kingdom, the power of the way things ought to be, breaking into the way things are. Restoration and healing and justice and life flourishing and brokenness mended and wrongs put right. Sign me up, Jesus. I am all in wherever you go. Jesus' evangelistic methods must have really puzzled his disciples. Do you remember how Jesus responded to this man? This is what he said. Okay. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was saying, yeah, I am the king of the kingdom. But I'm a king unlike any king the world has ever seen. No palace, no wealth, no status, a life of rejection and suffering. He's totally pumping the brakes on this would-be disciple's excitement and enthusiasm. And he's saying, have you counted the cost? Have you counted the cost of what it means to follow a king like that? Because here's the gospel. Jesus brings his kingdom, but he brings it through suffering and through defeat and through loss, and through rejection, and through self-denial, and through death. See, every other king, every other leader shows up and says, follow me, vote for me, join my political party, and what? I'll make your life better. And Jesus says, I love you, and I have a very difficult plan for your life. It's going to be very, very costly. Foxes have holes. And birds of the air have nests. To follow me is to come into a sharp realization that this world is not your home. And you have to count that cost. 
To truly count the cost of following Jesus, I think, is to embrace a sense of dislocation, a a sense of being out of place in this world. Have you ever seen somebody with a dislocated shoulder or ankle or knee? Uh, Maybe you've been watching a football game or a basketball game and somebody on the field or on the court gets hit or lands just the wrong way and their knee is dislocated. Have you ever seen that? It looks so bizarre that it just turns our stomachs inside out. They don't, they, the, you know, as soon as it happens on, in a football game, they stop showing that replay once they realize because people are getting sick. It's how out of place it is. And if you've ever seen this, you realize that the person with the dislocation, they're not very happy about it. It is tremendously painful. Have you counted the cost that to be a follower of Jesus in a pluralistic society is to embrace a sense of dislocation in the world, pain and suffering? You know, the longing to belong and to fit in and to be accepted and to have status and to have a successful career and enjoy financial success. Those aren't things in Baton Rouge, are they? Or, or maybe they are, right? And to follow Jesus is to embrace a dislocation from the world's ideas of success and happiness. It is to feel out of place in the world. To not belong, to not fit in, to be dislocated. The king's kingdom comes through suffering and through loss and through defeat and through self-denial and through death. You know, guess what? Christianity was born in a pluralistic society that ratcheted its pressure up on Christians. But through suffering and through rejection and through loss with deep joy and purpose, Christianity eventually swept through the Roman Empire and transformed an entire culture. One of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's most famous lines from his, um, his book, The Cost of Discipleship, is when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. You know, that line packs a punch when you realize that the, at the height of Hitler's Nazi regime, Bonhoeffer had some American friends. And they said, get out of there. Get out of Germany. And so they pulled some strings, and they got this important theologian out of Germany on a visa. And they set him up with a nice teaching job at a university, and they put him in a nice, posh, comfortable apartment in Manhattan, a place where he could enjoy success and comfort and good reputation. And he came. But he only lasted 26 days in America until he decided he had to return to Germany to follow Jesus, and to suffer and serve his people, where he was eventually arrested and eventually executed. When Christ calls a man, he wrote, he bids him come and die. Have you counted the cost? If you could just, we'll get to the last point real quick, but if you could just dream just a little bit, I mean, how might our neighborhoods, how might our places of business, how might our city change if we came and died to our reputation 
into our comforts, into our idols of success and achievement and longing to be accepted in this world. It changed and transpired an empire. What would a transformed Baton Rouge look like? All right, third and last, you have to hold fast by looking forward. Hold fast. Remain faithful, Jesus said in verse 25. Okay, but how do you do that in the midst of such constant and tremendous pressure? Jesus is telling us we hold fast by looking forward. That word until shows up twice in verse 25 and then in verse 26. Until he comes, until the end. And you keep reading, until Jesus gives his people authority over the nations. Until Jesus gives the morning star to his people. All right, here, here, do this quickly. One, hold fast by looking forward to Jesus giving us the morning star. That's verse 28. Um, what is that? What is the morning star? You have to go to Rev- the last chapter of Revelation, Revelation chapter 22, to find out what the morning star is. And this is Revelation 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Hold fast by looking forward. Jesus says, look beyond your present suffering to that day when I bring you before my face, when you will see me fully in all my glory and all my beauty, when you will get the beatific vision that you've been longing for all your life. Look forward to that day when the deepest joys and deepest delights of your heart break upon you uh, like the waves of the ocean in my presence. Look forward to that day when I give myself to you fully and you are satisfied with my love forever and ever and ever. You know, I read that the morning star, I know nothing about astronomy, but I, I read... Um, that the morning star usually appears at the darkest time of the night, usually two or three o'clock in the morning, when the night's as dark as it's going to get. That's when it usually appears. And when it appears at the darkest point of night, there's no sign of the dawn. But when that star appears, you know the dawn is coming. It's just a matter of time until dawn wipes the night away. Suffering presently in this dark world, look forward to the morning star that promises the dawn, that promises to effortlessly wipe the night away. Some guy's name I can't pronounce, so I'm not going to try, wrote this. The morning star pulls the morning in behind it, just as certainly as Jesus pulls the kingdom in behind him. It's a breathtakingly beautiful picture to me. The morning, star, it, it, the morning star leads to the second thing we have to look forward to, that Jesus is pulling the kingdom in behind him. The power of the way things ought to be, breaking fully and finally into the way things are, renewing and restoring all things, Jesus' assurance is that in that day, the nations will be our inheritance, and we will rule with him. 
For those of you who are in one of the women's Bible studies going through the Beatitudes, I wonder if you hear the echo here, right? Blessed are the meek. Those who lose their reputation in this life. Those who suffer and are despised. Who embrace a sense of dislocation and of being out of place in this world. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Hold fast by looking forward. One day, someday, the morning star is coming, and he will pull the kingdom in behind him. All right, final illustration, but I want to try to, it's a negative illustration, but I want to try to turn it into a positive and use it to prepare us to come to the Lord's table this morning. There's a man who lost his marriage over an affair that he had carried on with his mistress for a number of years. And when finally caught in coming to grips with what he had done, he was processing it all through with his pastor. And he said in this conversation that he knew that his wife loved him, but he became involved with this other woman when his wife would leave town on the weekends to care for her mother whose health was failing. And he explained that it was on those weekends that she went to be with her mother that his mistress would come over and they would carry on with their affair. And through tears and guilt and shame, he confessed that they went, went through it uh, for years. And so the pastor asked, how were you able to go, with, go through it for so long? And what he said was that whenever his mistress would come over, they would go throughout the entire house. And every picture of his wife on the walls, on the coffee table, on the dresser, on the bookshelf, they would go through the entire house and turn every picture of her upside down, facing the wall, on the coffee table, so on. He said it was the only way he could go, go through with it. Because he couldn't see her face. He couldn't see her smile. Those pictures were looking back at him and she was beaming in love for me and I couldn't go through with it with her looking at me like that. It is when you look forward to see the reward of your Savior's face beaming in love for you that you find strength today to hold fast in times of temptation, to compromise. It's when you see his dying faithfulness for you in your faithlessness that you find strength to repent and run into his grace. It's when you see him cut off and abandoned and rejected and suffering and dying for you that you find strength to hold fast for him Because he counted the cost. He counted the cost of loving you, which was death on a cross, bearing the burden of all your guilt and all your shame so that he could give you himself the morning star. Look forward to your Savior beaming in love for you, pulling the kingdom in behind him for you, And you find strength to hold fast. 
And to his people, Jesus gives this meal, the Lord's Supper, to celebrate. As the Apostle Paul wrote, until, there's that word again, until he comes again. You know why? Because this meal is a picture. Bread that represents Jesus' body, wine that represents his blood, and it is a picture of your Lord and Savior beaming in love for you. Look what he did for you. So great was his love for you. A picture, a meal that is meant to nourish and strengthen us so that we would hold fast until Jesus comes again. And if you're not a believer or or a member in good standing of a gospel-proclaiming church, we would ask that you would refrain from taking this meal. Refrain until you can come to this table and with the eyes of faith see in these elements your Savior beaming in love for you. Believer, come to this table with joy. Hold fast to your Lord and Savior in this meal. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, We give you thanks for the time that we are able to spend on Sunday mornings looking into your word together. Father, we thank you for the gift of your spirit to take these words and to write them upon our hearts to bring conviction of sin, to bring comfort in the knowledge that Jesus came into this world to live and die and be raised from the dead for us. Father, we pray that you would help us to see anew today the face of our Savior, even in this meal we are about to partake, to see him beaming in love for us so that we would understand the danger around us, so that we would count the cost of following him, so that we would hold fast looking forward to the revealing of the morning star and the kingdom he promises to give to us. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio sermon of South Baton Rouge Presbyterian Church. Please feel free to pass it along to others who might be encouraged by this message. Also, if you have any questions or would like to know more about the church or a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, please feel free to browse our website at www.sbrpc.org or contact the church office directly at area code 225-768-9999. Again, thank you for listening.